Our New Testament reading today is taken from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his first epistle. We're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, uh, reading right through today. It says 17. I'm going to read right through to verse 22. The apostle says this to the church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I s imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. God, our Father, we pray with your prophet Samuel. Speak, O Lord, for your servant listens. And we pray with the psalmist, O Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this place be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, we're looking today at our passage from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, and it's, uh, it's a stunning passage. I think it's quite striking, and there's a lot here. I wish, I wish we could explore all of it in, in one sitting, but we can't. But we can fix our minds today for a short time on something that's very important. The whole passage, 1 Corinthians 10, it's all about the sacrament. From baptism and spiritual food and drink in verse 3 to the cup and the table of the Lord in verse 21. Paul today wants us to think rightly about this important means of grace. And as Paul writes to make sure that the Corinthians are treating the sacrament in the right way, he wants them to recognize that when we deal with the God of all grace and of all goodness and of all kindness, as we approach him, we need to approach with a certain kind of fear and trembling, a certain holy awe. Paul is very concerned today that we should not be presumptuous in our approach to God, nor in our theology, nor in our prayers, nor in our conduct or any part of our, of our lives. And this note of holy trembling, of holy awe, is how Paul ends chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, Paul is talking about the Christian life as a race. And he says, I, I train hard. I, I am very, very concerned to run the race well because I want to, to, to win the prize. But if you're not careful, he says, in this race, you can be disqualified. I keep my body under control, he writes, lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. That is to say, lest I, the Apostle Paul, fail to gain the prize. And there's a healthy fear here in Paul that we have to receive in the spirit that it's given, not explained away by our theology, but simply taken at face value. And the staunchest Calvinist, in which party I firmly identify myself, should listen to the apostle here and should remember what the interpreter says to Christian and Bunyan's allegory. After Christian sees the man in the iron cage, the man who through following the pleasures and the profits of the world is no longer able to repent of his sins, and he's stuck in this iron cage, unable to repent before God. And Bunyan's interpreter says to Christian in this allegory, he says this, he says, let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. And the character from Bunyan's reformed Puritan pen answers in this way, well, this is a fearful thing. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I, may, that I may shun this man's misery. And when we come to Paul here, as he contemplates this righteous fear that he may be disqualified, and as he unpacks that fear in chapter 10 and applies it to the Corinthians, the only proper response is to say with Bunyan, well, this is a fearful thing. Now look at how Paul applies this very serious idea of disqualification to the Corinthian church. He reminds them that the newly redeemed Israel, delivered from Egyptian bondage, was and is the same church. These were our fathers, he says in verse 1. Not some different religion, but our people, 
our fathers, and they were part of the same sacramental church. They were baptized in water, says Paul, in the cloud and in the sea. Just as your deliverance was followed by baptism, so was theirs. And just as your life is maintained by spiritual food and spiritual drink, so was theirs. God fed them, he says, with bread from heaven. Something inexplicable. Something they couldn't explain. And the word manna, as we said to the children, just means that. What? What is it? The Israelites said to each other. And God, Paul says, fed them with water from the, from the rock. Lest we should be tempted to divorce their experience from ours, Paul spells it out for us just what this means beyond any ambiguity. And the rock was Christ. They drank from the Lord just as we do. I think it's lovely. I think it's one of the most lovely images we have in the New Testament of the continuity of God's plan. One church, one God, one promise, one people, one Savior. But the continuity isn't really Paul's point. It's part of his argument, but it isn't his point this morning. His point is this. That was the church too. Our fathers, the same food, the same drink, the same Savior. That was the church too, and look what happened. This is why the nevertheless in verse 5 is terribly important. The same church, the same Savior, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now think of that. They all drank. They all ate. And Paul trembles. You see that now the connection. Chapter 9. I'm afraid that I might be disqualified. I'm afraid that I might not get the prize. Well, why do you think that way, Paul? And Paul says, I think that way because our fathers were disqualified, even though they were encompassed sacramentally by the same life-giving Savior. Paul just refuses to fall into presumption. The same Paul who says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus says, I'm afraid of being disqualified, of losing the prize. The same Paul who says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The same Paul says, he who thinks he stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. And this is where, brothers and sisters, we have to listen to C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who listened to another Charles, Charles Simeon, about letting Scripture be Scripture without having to bend it to our systems. Spurgeon says this in his book, Commenting and Commentators. He says, be thoroughly honest with the Word. Even if the Scriptures were the writing of mere men, conscience would demand fairness of you. But when it is the Lord's own words, be careful not to pervert it even in the smallest degree. Let it be said of you, as I've heard a venerable hearer of Mr. Simeon say of him, Sir, he was very Calvinistic when the text was so. And people find him an Arminian when the text was that way, for he always stuck to its plain sense. And here, we have to stick to Paul's plain sense, that it's important that we should be possessed by a certain fear and trembling that we too could be overthrown in the wilderness. 
our assurance of salvation notwithstanding. We're to hold to these things in tension, as Paul did, and to allow them to breed in us a certain real sobriety. They all ate, brothers and sisters. They all drank, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And Paul then applies this to the church today. We who eat the spiritual food, we who drink the cup from the Lord, these things, Paul says, were written for our instruction. And the point is clear, isn't it? I mean, I'll say to you, like Paul said to the Corinthians, you're sensible people. <laughs> this isn't very hard to understand. If you, did, if you do as they did, Paul says, and Paul implies, you can expect the same end. We must not indulge in the same sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test. Shall we provoke the Lord, he says? Are we stronger than he? Now, I don't need to go into all the sordid details about how our world is rampant with sexual immorality. It shapes and it defines our age. I think you all understand that very well. But some of you today need to hear the Apostle Paul say this afresh. You cannot dally with this stuff. You must not indulge in it because of the great things that are at stake. On your computer, brothers and sisters, on your phone, on your TV, in your relationships, you cannot indulge in sexual immorality. The world is full of it, but you as God's people must be set apart. See, Israel had learned from Egypt for 400 years. They had been sitting at the feet of the Egyptians, learning their ways. And Israel had learned to idolize sex. And as soon as they make that golden calf, as soon as they make that idol, it says they rise up to play. And the word in Hebrew, to play there, means to, to, to create an, uh, a sexual encounter, an orgy of sorts. They had learned that from Egypt. But God wants His people to be set apart from Egypt in its ways. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, partakers of the divine nature. Not partakers of the sins of demons, which is what Paul spells out here in Corinthians 10. Brothers and sisters, hear this. When you go to these things, the altars of the world, where they display their gods of sex and sexuality, these, Paul says, are the habitations of demons. And with a click of your mouse, you participate with the demonic. You open yourselves to them in a very profound way. And Paul says very plainly here in verse 20, I do not want you to participate with demons. And that should change the way that we look at things. Behind the idolatry of the world, and in this context, Paul is speaking of sexual idolatry, behind the idols of the world is the chaos and the bondage of the demonic. Do not, he says, underestimate this. Do not close your ears to this. Do not forget this. Remember what is behind the idols of our age and don't go near them. You must not indulge in these things. Don't fellowship with demons. They will devour you in the worst kind of way. Rather, Paul says, fellowship with Christ. 
Live your life to unite yourself to Jesus. And Paul is so concerned today about how we think about this sacramental rite, this union with Jesus, because he's so convinced of its inestimable power. The cup of blessing that we bless, he says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And what Paul is saying here is that this sacramental feast, which we are about to partake today, it brings us into the most intimate, near, and life-giving communion, fellowship, koinonia, with the very body and blood of our Savior. You see, these saving realities, they enter us with mysterious power. It is manna. We can't comprehend it. Calvin says these things tower above our comprehension. Christ's body is the true manna, and we say with the Israelites, what is it? Because it's so far above us. And so Calvin calls the Lord's table high mystery, sacred food, mystical blessing. This sacramental supper, writes Calvin, is a true partaking of Christ, and we must not divorce the signs from their mysteries. What Christ outwardly designates he inwardly fulfills. And every time we do this, Calvin says, every Sunday, his life passes into ours, and his life is made ours repeatedly every time we receive, and we gather strength until we reach the blessedness of heavenly immortality. And then Calvin says, what your mind can't comprehend, let your faith conceive. And the godly, writes Calvin, ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see symbols ordained and appointed by the Lord, to think and to be persuaded that the truth of the thing being signified is surely present there. The body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of its saving benefits every time you feast given to you. Brothers and sisters, do not participate in demons. Participate in the Lord. Don't go near those things that will lead to your destruction and to your disqualification if you persist in them, but go near those things that lead to your salvation, that build you up, that restore you, and that set you free. And so I want to close today with a lovely little word from Martin Luther. Since we sang his Psalm 130 this morning, it's a fitting way to close. And this is from a lovely little sermon of his called On the Worthy Reception of the Sacrament. And I want to share this with you today. Lest any of you think that you are unworthy to come to the table because of your many sins. Luther writes, If you do not want to come to the sacrament until you are perfectly clean and whole, it would be better for you to remain always away entirely. The sacrament is not for those who have helped themselves. The sacrament is there to purify and to help you. The sublime sacrament must be regarded by us as medicine for the soul, and the Lord kindly invites and encourages all who are sinners and who find themselves so burdened beyond their strength that they yearn for help. In approaching the Lord's table, Luther says, the only question you need to ask is whether you recognize and feel your labor and your burden and you fervently desire to be relieved.
then you are indeed worthy of the sacrament. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.